This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the former and recently retired Acting Chief Information Officer and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Janet, this is an exit interview of sorts because after 40 plus years, you retired in January. So first of all, thanks for taking the time and congratulations. Great. Well, thank you. And and thanks, Jason, for having me today. And I also need to slip something in here. I want to thank all my colleagues over the years. They've been great, awesome people to work with. So thanks to everybody. I appreciate it. Well, we will talk about those colleagues probably a little bit and all those all that good work you did with them over the years. But we got to start with the first question is why now? Why did you, did you decide to retire? I mean, 40 years, you deserve it. But, you know, a lot of people find it hard to step away sometimes. Definitely is hard to step away from. I have real deeply rooted sense of patriotism and dedication. And so stepping away to make a change was a really hard decision. I did think about it over the last couple of years, and this time just seemed opportune for me to try something new. Uh, I like to learn something new every day, and this gives me the opportunity to do a lot of that. So uh, difficult decision but it's just the right time. It sounds to me like you're retired, but you're not going to move to Florida and play golf every day or or Canasta or whatever they do in Florida, Mahjong. What is your plans now? What comes next for you? First of all, the last few years have been pretty intense. And so I'm going to take a couple months just to catch up on all the things I've been putting off. And then I'll decide what I'm going to do next is my next adventure. I'm really exploring things right now. And every now and then I do get a game of solitaire on my phone. So it's a different, you know, it's a real different lifestyle, but I highly recommend it. Well, I'm looking forward to retiring too, but I'm a a, a few years out. I keep, uh, my wife keeps telling me we're, we're moving closer to that age. Just, it's going to be a while. So you have a big honey do list of sorts, I imagine. And uh, that's great. Do you think you'll end up back in the federal sector in some way, or are you going to go in a totally different direction and, and, and work in a different sector, or do you think you'll volunteer? Or, or I know you say you'll figure it out, but but how do you lean right now? Well, right now I'm thinking that it would be something in the volunteer or service area. I want to make sure that we still protect the citizens and all of the assets that we have in this country. So I'm looking into volunteer or contributing in some way in that manner. I What that exactly is, I'm not sure yet, but the options are out there. All right. Well, I'm sure wherever you land, you'll have fun. And as you said, learn something new, which is everything we all try, strive to do every day. Let's talk about your career in government a little bit. I, I know you spent the last, uh, I want to say, four or five years, maybe six years at HHS. Where else did you work? What brought you into the technology cybersecurity sector more specifically? Give, give me kind of that that summation of your career. I grew up in a small farming community in Oregon and learned about manual labor. We, you know, worked in the fields, all that. And I knew that there was an opportunity to do more. And at university, when I was studying business, I had to learn to code software. And 
I thought it was fascinating because the computer will do whatever you tell it to do, but you have to know how to tell it to do that. And so it became to me like a fun puzzle to solve. And that was pretty exciting. And from there, I really went into what, what would the impact of automation be on the workplace? So when I came to the uh, federal government, I, I didn't get right into computers, but I was went through a management intern program and was able to move over into the IT section and went from there for multiple different projects at different agencies with different perspectives. So I really wanted to broaden my perspective and improve the workplace, but also the services that we were able to deliver. What brought you into the government? Did you get out of college and, and you were looking for a job? Did you have family in the government? And, and mom or dad said, you know, Janet, this is what you should do. Give me the backstory. Because I, if, if we go back 40 years, and I don't want to date you too much, but that's 1980s time frame. And that was a much different government then than it is obviously today. You know, I studied political science and I went, was interested in administration. And at one point I, I got a job offer for a summer internship at HHS in DC. And I thought, well, you know, part of my career, public administration, I might as well get a, you know, check off working for the federal government off my list at some point, why not now? I came to DC uh, and I worked in human resources for the office of the secretary at HHS. And from there, I was able to move on and up. And, you know, I came for the summer and I stayed for 40 years, come on. Because the government's such a great employer it's also rewarding. And I think when you're at HHS, you realize that just have a job. It's a calling for people. And all of the staff there is very dedicated and really looking for results. I came to HHS originally, but I moved to the Agency for International Development. I moved to the FAA. I worked at Treasury. Then I worked at CMS for HHS before coming to the office of the secretary again. So it's kind of gone full circle. It's interesting how that happens. And then you finally, as you said, fell into technology in some ways. It's great that you're a political science major in college because that means you didn't come in with this heavy tech background. And you, when, you, when you started to delve into technology, you probably said to people, no, 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 explain it to me like, a lay person, because that's, you know, many times that's what we are when we don't have that technology background. How did you get into technology? You mentioned the management intern program. Was it like a White House fellowship program? Was it presidential management fellows? What, what was it? It was an HHS program. And uh, I worked for in the Office of Information Services. I believe it was called at the time, you know, we had, it was called ADP, automated data processing at the time, right? And so <laughs> I got a lot of experience there with great mentors and moved to the o uh, Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health and went through all of the process of how do you get an authority or an approval for an ADP project? And I worked mostly with the NIH at that time. 
And, you know, it was really exciting because I had to see what it takes to put together a program and what it takes to manage it. We went through every, every acquisition and went to GSA for approval for every IT acquisition at that time. So it really gave me a thorough understanding. One of the exciting things I worked on at that time was getting approval for the supercomputer. That was awesome. Uh, it really, it really showed me the whole, a holistic view, which was really important. And then I moved into more of an operational project that gave me a lot more technical uh, expertise. At the Agency for International Development, I was able to purchase computing capability for foreign countries that were lesser developed at the time. And it really broadened my perspective about computing around the world. What was needed? What were the basics? And how do you how do you improve lifestyles, the government, all of that through automation? So that was very, very exciting. It, it always amazes me how people kind of fall into technology, right? At what point during your career did you feel like, hey, this computer thing, I like it. This technology thing, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable. And, and did you take extra courses? Did you put yourself through training? Was there anything you did to be like, I got to learn more because one, it's a great puzzle to solve, but two, it's going to really advance my career. Oh yeah. I, I really got excited about it at agency for international development and what it could do, how we could improve things. And then I was invited to join a team that was working on system development. And uh, we actually had to work on coding and, I thought that was really exciting, exciting to see how it changed the way people did their jobs and how important it could be in the future. And I was like, yeah, this is it. I, someday I want to be a CIO. And uh, so it, it just started really clicking as I was more in the operations and system development and looking at the technology to support all of the big programs and the software and the program itself. So that was that I was hooked. Let's take a quick break. We come back. I, I want to find out how much you've seen in terms of the change of technology. I want to go back to those days of the you know, Wang computer and the green screens to compare it to now. But first, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back. We'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the recently retired former HHS Acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the recently retired and former Acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Janet, before break, we're learning about your career a little bit and how you got into technology. And the one question I love to ask folks who've, who've retired is, the big change that you've seen in technology during your career. Were there any technologies back in the 80s, 90s, 2000s that you said, oh, that's it, that's the, the magic bullet, and then didn't really pan out? And then there were other technologies where you said, that will never pan out. And today you're like, wow, that's a lot more value than I thought there was. And, and I'm going to say, please, please don't say blockchain. Tell me a few of the uh, technologies that 
that really how it's changed over the last 40 years? There has been so much change. And I think the essence of it is that what we take for granted now is that the information comes to us, right? I mean, you can look up anything on your phone, you have access, you can look at people you're talking to on your cell phone. Earlier, that was not the case. You had to go to the information. So even when we were learning to code, we had punched the cards and you had a deck of cards and you had to literally take that to the computer center, submit the job, they would run it, then you'd get your printout back. And so in a way, you had to go to the information and to the computer. And that was a great step forward at the time. And you're right, I did work on the Wang green screens. And some of the things that we do now, texting, we had a computer kind of language where we could text each other through the mainframe to talk. And that was great. So when they came up with texting on your phone, it was like, oh, somebody finally figured out how to do this now. It, it, it was very different. We had to justify automation, justify why we needed to make the investment. Now it seems like it's much more of a given. And I know I, thank goodness, I have a cell phone um, and a notebook. That kind of thing is just worlds different. We also went from coding, you know, if then go to, and I learned Fortran, which is a financially oriented software language. And when people started moving to more modern technologies, my first thought was, those are cheaters. They're not doing it the right way. Fortunately, that's the way the world moved. And now we have low-code, no-code platforms, APIs, all kinds of things that are reusable and make things easier. So it's changed tremendously. I think one thing that's kind of gotten passed over is the video phone on your desk. And that, I thought, was awesome. And then it got overtaken in a heartbeat. We had video on our computers. We had to go to telework full-time. And so that's something that we just sort of left those video phones on the desk in the office. And now I can just do that on my phone. So things really have changed. I think they have sped up a lot. I mean, think about it from punching cards for computer software capability of doing financial analysis to uh, having everything in a heartbeat. I mean, it, it's just amazing the time it would take to do that uh, back then versus the time it takes us to do those things now is just amazing. It's like um, an evolution. And I think that if we could invest more in innovation, we could even improve on what we've got today. So I think it's awesome. So those are some of the things that I 
thought probably wouldn't go away, but should go away. And then, you know, our technical geniuses figured out how to do things a lot faster and a lot better. And we're really seeing the advantages that brings us now. I love the video phone discussion. Did you actually have one on your desk? Did you actually, because I, I don't think I've ever seen one. Yeah, several of us had them and they just, they look like your phone, but there's a, a piece on the top and the back that you could video chat with people. So you could call them on the phone and they're, when they answer, their face would show up and you could talk to them and see them in person. I think they're still out there, but I don't know anybody that uses them. I, you know, I want to know the deal. I want to know the vendor or the person in the government who said that was a good idea. <laughs> Let's pay for that service. Uh, well, other... yeah, well, that's what we call a pilot. Oh, okay. <laughs> we got to test it first. <laughs> test it. Uh, and then the Fortran piece, uh, I, I think, you know, in retirement, you may be getting a call from your friends at SSA or, or CMS who may need your help to code more Fortran. I mean, I think that and COBOL, right? You you would you would qualify as a re, renewing it uh, just, for, just for your Fortran skills. That is possible, but unlikely <laughs> to happen. I, so um, you haven't bought your book, Fortran for Dummies, just to remind yourself how it works and you're, you're not, you're not, yeah, okay. Fair enough, fair enough. No, it's it, it's the if-then go-to statements that you <laughs> have to build, and it's still the same. Guess I remember those uh, in high school learning basic, the, the, lang the basic language, and that was very similar. We didn't really learn it very much, but just I remember that little piece of it. Jenna, I love the memories. Uh, again, uh, the mainframe texting, the, the deck of cards, uh, all of that is is part of the, the history. Uh, I, I did a... Um, story recently about the BlackBerry when the BlackBerry went away and, and got some very similar, just great memories from folks. And, and they all talked about that keyboard. I love the keyboard. So everybody kind of attaches to something that they remember. I want to move forward though, and then talk about your career a little bit. When, when you look back on and, and some of the accomplishments, some of the projects you're most proud of, what stands out to you? And and of course, if we all, eventually we'll focus on some of those things that happened in the last few years at HHS. The Agency for International Development and really being able to implement technology in places around the world that that didn't have it and, and really needed it. So that, I believe, made a difference and will continue making a difference going forward just for world development. And then um, at the Department of Treasury, we worked on an HR system. And that resulted in a federal shared service for human resources capabilities. So that was very much a foundation of functions that everybody needs and made it easier for others to access. At the CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, I ran the high glass program, the healthcare general ledger accounting system. And what we did there was a total makeover of how the Medicare fund and payments are made. So we were able to implement fundamental accounting capabilities rather than a sort of an honor system with all of the Medicare providers. 
And by doing that, we had to teach the contractors in the healthcare industry that process claims how to do their jobs differently. So it was a whole, at the time, a business process improvement kind of thing. And it really included teaching people how to do things differently. But we had to build a system at the same time so that they could do that. And then we had to host it. It had all aspects of a huge project. And we really did like a whole makeover of the Medicare payment process. And as a result, we were able to reduce the outflow of funds and keep money in the Medicare fund so that it lengthened the life of that fund. And by doing this, and we were able to save billions of dollars in the Medicare fund, which extends the life of that fund that pays Medicare claims. The system processes about four and a half million claims for healthcare every day. And if we're able to do that with tighter financial controls, it really makes a big difference. So to me, that was a huge accomplishment. It really, uh, you know, extending the life of the Medicare fund is so important for the health care of everyone. So that was very much one of my, what I feel was an accomplishment for everyone, really. So all of the healthcare providers have a better way of doing business and the healthcare claims processors and CMS and HHS, everybody kind of gets the benefit of that. The couple of projects, I want to go back to the USAID one real quick. That is one of those things that kind of hooks you into technology, hooks you into government, hooks you into the, the impact you can make. Was this a matter of deploying computers or educating people about the power of computers and technology? Do you, do you remember if, if you which countries you went to, any other details you're able to provide? One area was in Pakistan, the procurement of a computing capability to do their census. They were underpowered. They had to make a procurement. And I was actually able to go there and help them evaluate bids on their contracts, look at the technical technical aspects that were being uh, presented, and also work on finalizing, bringing that into their country. With the AID, the money has to be spent on U.S. products. And so we were able to, I was able to see, you know, the companies, the quality of their proposals, and help show the people there how to look for those things and what to do next. So it was helping them actually implement the technology in their country, uh, a little bit of education, both. That was very exciting. Yeah, I imagine that that's why people do government work. I mean, you, you see the impact you can have, you get hooked into the to making the, the, the world a better place. And, and the census, you know, people, it's an important thing for countries to understand the, the, the numbers of people and where they are and, and all those details because it, it matters in, in so many different ways. Janet, let's take a quick break. We come back, we can talk about HHS a little bit more. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the former and recently retired acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. 
I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the former and recently retired acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, Janet, before break, we're talking about your, your early parts of your career, the work you did at USAID in, in Pakistan. I thought that was a, it's a great story. The work you did for CMS, another great accomplishment. Let's now specifically focus on your work at HHS over the last few years. What are some of those things you worked on? What are some of your accomplishments? Give me a sense of, of what you're proud of that your time at HHS most recently. When I came back to the office of the secretary at HHS, part of the role in the CISO was coordinating with the CISOs and cybersecurity community across the department. Fortunately, I'd been involved in the CIO activities over the years at CMS and was able to make connections or reconnect with people that I hadn't been as involved with. And it it really was an important thing to do to link and improve our communications across the department. So we did several things there. One of the things in our council meetings that I did was I sponsored what I called speed matching. And speed matching, the instructions were bring, each of you bring three things that you do really well and three things you want improvement on. And through our meeting, we paired up sort of like speed dating and had sessions where each of them in that pair would talk about the things that they did well and share information. And as a result, and then they would move to the next, but as a result, we were able to improve the sharing. If, for example, if someone did training on privacy or security really well, and another person said, well, my office needs to do better or more, they were able to share their products and not have to reinvent the wheel. So that's one of the things I believe was helpful in improving our communications and coordination. We also set up um, a network team that looked at cybersecurity at different operations centers across the department. So with the cyber, different layers, you know, policy operations, that kind of thing. But at each of those layers, we built a council or a committee that could get together on a monthly basis and talk about the issues they were having or the successes they were having to share with others. So those are some of the things that I did to help knit our functions and our people together. It's really important to know who who are you going to call? You know, who are you going to pick up and call, pick up the phone and call when you've got a problem or you see something that's not normal? And it doesn't mean it's a problem, but if it's not, if it's out of the norm, you want to see, is this just me or others? And then how do we solve it? And so contributing to each other's work like that has really helped solidify some of our efforts in operations, policy, training. We we also worked a lot on workforce and we need to attract and retain highly skilled people. 
And in doing that, we looked into different recruitment capabilities and we researched new areas. We developed a technique for hiring that uh, seems to have been much more productive and increased our hiring. And I think a lot of times people may not do something because they don't know how. And so we implemented training that was very basic that anybody could relate to their own home and their own life because cyber does not have boundaries, right? So if you could know how to use that information in your own home, like how do I, how do I reset that uh, password that comes on a piece of equipment, a server when I buy it from my home? How do I reset that to make it safer? They'll think more about that if they know those things in everything they do. And that's what we have to do for cyber. It has to be a part of everything we do. And so one of posters we put together was cybersecurity isn't one thing, it's everything. So it's in your homes, in your business, in your phones, and we need to protect that everywhere. And so we took the training to the people in their own language rather than just talking techie. And that has had a huge response. We get hundreds and hundreds of people on our monthly uh, awareness calls where we talk about those things. So those are some of the things that we did within the CISO office in addition to you know, expanding our security technologies, changing our focus, trying to be innovative and anticipate what bad actors might try to do. And that's an important point in you really got to get ahead of these things. My saying is it's easier to keep up than catch up. And so if you're not thinking ahead on what do you need to do to keep up and get ahead of problems, they're going to catch you. And that's when, it, you know, it's going to cost you money and time and effort, which takes away from other things you could be doing. So it's easier to keep up than to catch up. And with that mentality, we're able to provide a, a very robust cybersecurity program for HHS. Those are some of the things we've done recently. And I say we, because there's a fantastic team there. I love the people. They're just the best and creative and, and funny, you know? I mean, who would have thought? Bunch of cyber techies, but you know, I think that's a way to cope with the stress of the job and it makes it so much easier. So we were able to bring in new technologies, be prepared for telework and those types of capabilities. We also established the Healthcare Cybersecurity Center or what we call HC3 that takes cyber information that we know about threats or vulnerabilities and puts it into a language that is understandable to the medical community. And we send out those bulletins to the cyber contacts in the healthcare industry that we have, and there are thousands of them. So we will say, here's the threat, here's what it means to you, 
here's how you could identify this if you have the problem and here's what you do. So our outreach to the healthcare uh, sector has been enormous. And I think it's been very beneficial. We're able to put things in more medical and operational terms than just techie talk. So outreach, education, strengthening our fabric of cybersecurity. Those are some of the important cyber activities. Let, let me jump in here for a sec, because I want to I go back to two things. First of all, the, I'm glad you brought up the HC3. Uh, you and I talked about that when you, uh, I guess, re- relaunched it a couple years ago. With all we've seen over the last couple of years, not just the pandemic, but between solar winds and the ransomware increase in ransomware attacks and the obviously now Log4j, has the has the HC3's kind of value risen? Are people looking to HHS and, and the operations center much differently than they did three, four, five years ago? Help me understand what, what you're seeing. I believe that it is much more established and accepted. We get requests for information, not just from the healthcare sector, but from other people. As everybody becomes a little bit more technically oriented or aware, they find the products very useful. And so we'll get requests, you know, can I be added to your distribution list? And of course you can't. Uh, it's all public information. And we have a website now, we, there is a website and you can go there and you can look through all the history. So if you have a question about some type of threat or how to do something, there's a library now that's accessible to everyone, not just the bulletins that we send out frequently. So it's much more accessible much more being used and seems like it has been ingrained in our capabilities at HHS. So yes, and and it's been awesome. Uh, associations ask for information. Lots of people are interested. The other thing I just want to bring uh, to touch upon as well is you talk about the councils that kind of bring folks together to share information, share problems, share solutions. One of the reasons why I think that's so important is the federation, if you will, of HHS. You have, it's, I think it's well known that being the HHS CIO is not an easy task, to say the least. So the more you can bring folks together, the more you can share, the easier hopefully that task becomes as being the CIO. What's the impact has that had? I mean, do you feel like that's a lasting impact you've had on HHS to to kind of bring the FDA and, this, and CMS and NIH and others closer together? So they do know each other when there's a problem, but also they can share those services, share those ideas, share contracts, whatever, in a, in a, in a different way. It's interesting that I hear or I would hear that um, one Optive had been working closely with another operating division in solving a problem or addressing something they didn't they didn't need to ask. They didn't, you know, if they didn't know who was doing it, they would call and I'd get them together with the right people. Um, But they started doing that on their own. And I think that is an important sign that things were working the way they should be. My perspective was 
you all know all of the laws, all of the rules, all the regulations. It's, I can tell you about them. I can tell you what we need to do as a community, but I need to hear from you. What are the hurdles that you're trying to overcome? What did you do to make it easier? But that's not for me. It's for everyone. So it was more collaboration rather than a top-down approach. All right, Janet, let's take one more quick break. When we come back, we can finish up our conversation. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the former and recently retired acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Janet Vogel, the former and recently retired acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Janet, before break, we're talking about some of your accomplishments at HHS in the cybersecurity world. Uh, there's one thing uh, I got to ask is, is, okay, so we have a new CISO coming on eventually, a new CIO coming on eventually. What are, what's that to-do list you left them in that top right drawer? Or if they call you up and say, all right, Janet, what do I do next? What are you going to tell them? I would definitely recommend that they think big and lean forward, right? It's a big job. There are so many moving pieces that you really, you have to focus on both compliance and operations at the same time because we do operate things department-wide and compliance. Compliance can eat your lunch and your dinner but you can make it easier. So I would say think big, get views that are not just techie so that you understand the impact of choices. So listen, get the input, think about it, lean forward, and definitely focus on resiliency. So what's your plan B? What's your plan C? Because a HHS holds critical infrastructure capabilities, and that's on the shoulders of the IT and the cyber people. It really is. And everyone else, if you believe cyber is everything. No, that's great advice for others in the federal technology world, but I'm going to take you back one and say, was there anything that you didn't quite finish up or you'd like to finish up that you would have liked to finish up at HHS that you would tell the next so? you know, really focus. I know zero trust is just, we'll throw that out there as an example. That's a big buzzword. A lot of focus on the administration. OMB recently released the final zero trust strategy. Is there anything of that nature that you would, would offer up for HHS to still work on or move forward on? Right. I think immediately we need to, they need to look at implementing the new NIST 853 privacy and cyber policy and making sure that that goes out and that we work more closely with privacy. So we put together a new HHS policy on that. And so that needs to be front and center. Zero trust is, and defense in depth are very, very important. And I would definitely, as you mentioned, uh, focus on that kind of thing. 
the skill of the people that are involved is really important. So think about that. And when you have high performing employees, they like to be challenged. So take advantage of that. Take advantage of that as a resource, but also think about how to upskill and, and make sure that everybody stays current on their skills. All right. Good advice for the next person. I think the zero trust piece is something that every CIO, CISO and the like will have to get to deal with. And, and obviously it's always good to hear that there's a, the, the privacy side is not being forgotten in the security discussion. Jen, a couple other things before I let you go. I think, I think it's always interesting to ask folks who have been in the government for a long time, why is cybersecurity difficult? What can be done to improve it? So if, if you could wave your magic wand, if you could kind of change a few things, uh, you know, if you're a queen for the day, what would that be? And what would, what, what would you want to improve about the federal IT sector? The federal IT sector being governed by over a hundred laws, rules, and regulations is, it may be weighed down by that. So if I were the one to make the rules, I would simplify the compliance and the auditing so that it would let cyber focus on being more effective in cyber. That said, it's not one office that can do this. We need to make sure that others are engaged. So I would say simplify the oversight and all of the legislation that we're constantly reporting on. I think that the evolving nature of cyber makes it a little more difficult because it's not quite as mature yet. And I'm not sure it'll ever get there because we have a lot of people that are bad actors that that's all they want to do is disrupt. Some things that I would say for improvement, if I were, you know, in charge of everything is to give IT and cyber direct funding and emphasize the role of the CIO. It really does make a difference if you have multi-year funding in your ability to plan and execute strategic operational activities. So that were possible, that would be a big improvement. And then also, um, you know, finding common ground with the businesses and making sure that it can be a part of everything people do in a very easy way. Let's make it easy. Uh, Janet, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. So let me say thank you for your time. Thank you for your service to the government. My guest today has been Janet Vogel, the former and recently retired acting CIO and Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Health and Human Services. Janet, it was great to catch up. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, everyone. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. 
whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.